Right, so I'm Marika and I'm the reserve manager here at Tentspear. Um, the reason that I think this place is so special is, so the nature reserve is made up of three different sites. We've got Tentsmere Point, Morton Locks and Tayport Heath. And I think the beauty of it is we've got the beach, we've got the dunes and we've also got Morton Locks, which is the fresh locks inland. And you can see such a range of species in one day. Um, you can be down at Morton Locks and see all the red squirrels. You can see everything on the loch. We've got tufted ducks, the swans and other water birds, lots of teal. And then you can go down to Tentsmere Point and you've got a chance of seeing an eagle, you could see the seals hauled out and you're just on the biggest foreshore. Like you walk over the dunes and you just, it never looks the same. I've been here a year and a half and every time I go down there I'm just amazed at how different it looks, but it always looks amazing. Hello, my name is Kashka and welcome to Plant Voices podcast from Tapewood Community Garden where we tell local stories about gardening, food, nature and climate change. As usual this February, Plant have joined the annual Show the Love campaign by Climate Coalition, which encourages everyone to celebrate things we love and want to protect from climate emergency. So we thought it would be fitting that uh, for our podcast this month, we should talk about Tensmuir, everyone's favourite place here on Tayport's doorstep. We interviewed two people whose job it's been to take care of nature in Tensmuir area at one time or another. Kathleen talked to Marika, who is the freshly minted National Nature Reserve Manager for Tensmuir Point and Morton Locks, about what you can find there at the moment and how to get involved in their work or fun activities they hope to offer when lockdown lifts this summer. And I spoke to Tony Wilson, who has known Tenspure as a countryside ranger and local resident for over 30 years. He discusses the effects climate change may have on local plants and animals. At the end, Marika comes back to outline how Nature Scott is doing their bit in tackling Scotland's carbon emissions and stopping the worst effects of climate change in the future. But let's start by listening to the voice of one of several visitors to Tensmuir, whom we asked to share some of their favourite things about the place. I love Tensmuir. I just love going there for wanders. But I was thinking of a time this year, and I was getting very stressed with work, and I thought I must stop, must go for a walk been online for days and days and I went into the forest and I was just thinking work and work 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 and then I stopped and I looked around and I was in the most beautiful place it was breathtaking it was autumn everything was golden I was like on this golden path and it really made me think to myself you know enough now just appreciate the place you live how beautiful it is and what a beautiful world it is and it was just totally uplifting and that's what Tensmuir does for me when I go and visit it. Tentsmuir has become even dearer to us since the lockdown. Um, I know for myself, I have been visiting the forest just about every day, and in fact, sometimes twice a day, um, either cycling or walking. And for me, Tentsmuir is just such a place of sanctuary and solace. And I would have to say that really it's helped my mental health um, enormously through this pandemic. And I think I'm probably speaking for um, a lot of people in Tayport and beyond. So we're really pleased um, today to welcome um, Marie Cartleith, who is the reserve manager there. And she's going to start by telling us a little bit about your uh, journey to Tentsmuir. So I've always been interested in nature and I think like a lot of people it sort of started with garden birds so I was quite lucky to grow up in the countryside in Aberdeenshire and my mum and dad really like birds and we have a nice garden back there so that's kind of where it started and then at school my favourite subject was always biology. I think in my fifth year of school I started to look into what I would do in the future. I went on to do a zoology degree at Aberdeen and I absolutely loved it. And I think it was about halfway through that I started to do conservation biology courses as well. That's when I decided I really wanted to go into practical conservation, but also I really like the people engagement part as well. Obviously you can't really get into this without doing some volunteering, but that's kind of how you find out if you really want to do it anyway. So I started to do lots of volunteering with different organizations back up in Aberdeen. 
Um, so to like with the RSPB, um, I did quite a bit of people engagement and I also started to do environmental education. So we'd go into schools and take them outside and do like bio blitzes, get them finding mini beasts, picking up worms, stuff like that, just getting really stuck in. And that that's one of my favorite things to do. Um, so when it came for graduation and I was applying for jobs, I went for a student placement with Nature Scott and I got the one at Tentsphere. It was just a one year and it's sort of a structured program. You get through, put through your tickets, you get brush gutter, do streaming, work on the reserve for a year um, and just learn a huge range of things. And then as my year was coming to an end, that's when COVID hit as well. Um, but my manager at the time, Tom, he was retiring. There was the job available, so I applied for it. And then here I am, I'm the manager of Tentsphere now. So very happy to be here. It's only the second time I've ever been. Um, we just came, walked to Burton, took in some of the scenery. Um, as I looked for some wildlife, saw some cows on the beach. It was quite a quite a long day just walking about and trying to just see what it's all about because I've never been before. So I just love the trees. I love the the, the really dense, thick forest contrasting with the big open beaches and I think it's a beautiful place to come and enjoy a, a full day out. I suppose you don't have anything like a typical day but can you kind of just talk us through maybe some of the things that you might be doing in any one day in, uh, the, in the reserve? I guess the main broad parts of it are the practical reserve management and maintenance so that's stuff like we could be doing fences, we've got the cattle that come out and graze in the summer. Can you tell us a little bit about why the cattle are there actually in the reserve? Um, so the cattle come out and they do a very important job for us. They're grazing the dunes and also down at Morton Locks and it just um, it stops it getting covered in scrub. They'll eat like the little trees, they'll keep the gorse and broom down um, and also they keep the grass nice and short so it allows the different um, flowers to come through so it stops mm -hmm. it getting totally rank and just choked out by the bigger grasses more dominant and it lets the rare smaller ones come through so they do a very good job and it is it's always nice to see them on the beach really mm -hmm. yeah I mean I, I, I'm always amazed I, I grew up on a farm and I just don't I don't usually associate cows and beaches but actually, they, last summer, uh, when I was at the point just about every day, the cows really seem to like the beach. <laughs> they really do. They do. They have a nice <laughs> summer. And like quite often you'll go down and if it's a hot day, they'll be standing like in the water or on the sand to get away from the flies. I get there's the budget side of things, just ordering supplies. We could be doing tree planting, a bit of visitor engagement definitely visitor management especially there's been a lot of visitors lately as well so just trying to make sure things are okay litter picking and also a lot of surveying and monitoring as well so a lot of that's done by us but a lot by volunteers as well and then we also have our volunteers so managing the volunteers trying to get some good tasks for them to do it could be reacting to things that have happened so like yesterday we were down clearing a tree because the snow had weighed it and blocked it across the path so yeah, never a dull day. There's a there's a tree that we call the ghost tree out, uh, I guess it's like in the middle. If you were going down one of the main streets here and then you turn off left and then you sort of find a path off into the trees, there's this tree that has- It's like oh, an oak tree. Yeah, that had fallen completely horizontal and then has grown up from that. And so it's a sort of natural bench with bits of branches and yeah. stuff. So in all the branches it. come out and we thought the, the tree was dead because we yeah. went in winter. And then it just, it was completely fine. So it's like completely, it looks completely uprooted and then all the branches come out. Yeah, yeah. But it's all and it's alive. still growing. It's and really it's surrounded good. by all these other trees that are dying and stuff. It's sort of uh, mythical seeming. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's very nice. pretty. Yeah. The sunlight coming through the trees as well is very nice. Yeah. So it's a family favourite. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned about the um, increase in visitors, uh, which is a, a great thing, I think. Um, do you have any sort of message for the people coming to the reserve? Uh, little guidelines or hints for them to enjoy their visit better, maybe? Our social media is a good place to check just to see what's ah. going on as our main messages. Um, but also if they were able to have a look at the Scottish Outdoor Access Code, it's important and it keeps everyone safe. And a big thing for us is disturbance. So we've got a lot of people out and they want to enjoy the beach, which we want them to as well. And we want them to come and see everything. 
but especially like disturbing animals you know if they're going up to the seals to get a better picture or maybe if a dog's off the lead and it sees a bird and wants to chase it we really need to have people more responsible for what they're doing so that everyone can enjoy it so dogs under close control or on a lead especially down at Tensmere Point it kind of benefits everyone because then there's going to be more wildlife around for people to see and that's why you want to come to the reserve anyway really definitely reading on site signs and interpretation as well that will keep you right. I think it's the scenic walks and the, sometimes the change in the weather you can go through four seasons and that in itself is you know exhilarating. Yeah the river being right out and right in it's different every time you come. Yeah when it's so different each time so you never get bored. You know one of the other things I just love about the reserve is I, I although I go there just about every day I am constantly surprised by the kind of ever-changing nature of the place and you know like yesterday I saw some deer and a squirrel um, the day before that it was the bullfinches there was I think three swans flying overhead can you tell us is there anything else maybe at this time of year in particular people should be looking out for tracks are a good one when we were out today we could see the squirrel the locks are almost completely frozen over um, especially at the edges and I think the squirrels normally go down to have a drink so we had to break a corner of the ice because we could see that their tracks had gone but yeah this especially in the snow it's a perfect time to go out keep an eye out for tracks um i think you can quite easily maybe spot at morton locks in particular the squirrel tracks you can see foxes maybe a badger print and also the roe deer you can quite often see where they've cut through the trees so that's always it's good to have a little explore um other things that people might see right now there's been a lot of gold crests out and about um in the trees so they're very small and you'll often see them darting about there's bullfinches. Well, a couple of weeks ago, there was a huge flock of about 200 finches. So it was probably bullfinches, some goldfinches, and who knows what else in there. But I wish I didn't have my binoculars on me at the time. There's a lot of teal on the loch, so that's always nice. And we've had the odd, so we saw one shoveler um, and also a pintail duck. You never really know what's going to pop in, maybe stopping off on its way somewhere. Um, but yeah, it's winter. There's always something to see. And you might see a skein of geese overhead as well. I know it's it's a reminder, isn't it, to often look up as well as yeah to to look ahead. You never know if I look down, you don't know what you might see there. If you want to get into fungus as well, like looking on dead trees, uh, even on some of our signs, we've got fungus, and it it's quite interesting once you start looking at it. I'm Sally, and I'm a reserve officer here at Tensmuir. My favourite part of Tensmuir is the wildlife that's here. Uh, specifically the red squirrels which is probably a cliche answer but I'm from Newcastle and growing up as a kid I'd see red squirrels but nowadays there's literally about a handful of them around where I live so being able to come here and come to work and every day see red squirrels makes me so incredibly happy. And do you have a particular special kind of time of day or season um, that you, you know, you particularly just want to be in Tensmuir? Um, I want to be at Tensmuir all the time, well, pretty much. Um, but I started there in July 2019 and I've not managed to have spring there yet because we got put into lockdown and we weren't able to visit for, I think it was until about June. So I'm really excited for spring this year because oh, I love the bu the butterflies and the dragonflies. Once they start coming out, I just love it because everything's just so alive. Um, so I'm excited to be able to spot the first ones this year. My favourite experience at Tents Muir in the last year was when we cycled in along the forest path from Tayport and I spotted some orchids growing um, in, in the woods just beside the path. It was one of those spots that I wasn't expecting and just happened to see a glance of something light in the underneath the tree and I jumped off my bike causing not consternation but the children <laughs> um, realized I'd stopped again to take another photo of a plant again but I was very excited to have found um, ladies tresses orchids and I knew they were in Tensmuir and I'd looked for them before and I'd never seen them I love plants I love spotting plants I haven't spotted before
And I think you were mentioning as well, um, you were something about planting wildflowers for butterflies. Is that, um, can you tell us anything more about that? Well, last year um, we were looking into that with people, both butterflies and also the butterfly conservation. Um, so what we want to do down Tensmere Point is, and Morton Lodge, they're both fantastic for butterflies in the summer. The grayling numbers, I think, have been in decline. So we're wanting to try and boost them a bit. And what they like is large areas of bare ground. They're called scrapes. So we're wanting to create a few of them just by hand. So using shovels just to take off the top layer of like grass and then expose the bare sand. Hopefully it's something we'll be able to get people involved in as well from the community, from butterfly groups, when maybe restrictions lighten up a bit. And it would just be, it'll be interesting to see if we can incorporate some um, wildflower planting with that as well. Um, maybe some butterfly, like the food plants and stuff like that for the butterflies and just see if like diversifying the habitat that bit more, creating the bare ground for them to bask in, if that will help them and if we see an increase in numbers at the site. Well, the mountain locks, I love it, the silence. Uh, the silence and the, the, the sounds of the, all the birds, the swamps, even the lake uh, or the wind. Uh, that blows between the trees. It's very relaxing, very like uh, make me travel to some places or other dimensional from my imagination. Yeah, and Tensmuir. Oh, Tensmuir. It's one of my biggest love. I fall in love for Tensmuir, especially when I go there for a swim in those cool waters. Oh, but it's so nice. Uh, I love the seeing the seals, the baby ones, and the, and to hear them like arr, 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 like communication between them. It's so funny. It's uh, making happiness. You know, I feel happiness. It's a luxury living here. Um, just kind of an, an aside, I suppose. Um, I had a, a friend actually who emailed me about the um, the seal pups. One of them apparently was at the harbour. You know, this the whole seal thing. What what are you advising the general public on that one? Really, we get quite a lot of reports of seal disturb. Well, not we're not too bad for disturbance on our reserve. Um, I think, but there have been cases just in the past year. I think jet skis as well, going really close to them. Also people and dogs, because I think people, I don't think they intentionally mean harm, but that doesn't mean it's not, well, it becomes illegal once you start um, harassing them. What we say is to be at least 100 meters away from them. And if you start walking towards them and the seals all start raising their heads, you're getting too close to so just back off completely. Because uh -huh. if people do start approach them, you might push a young pup into the water when it was supposed to be resting um, and that can make it really ill. Or if you're approaching a group of seals, you could cause them all to stampede into the water. And if there's young ones in there, they might get crushed or injured or even die. There's no reason really to be getting close to the seals. So watch them from afar. So it's for people's safety as well, because they will bite you and they'll bite dogs as well. And you, I mean, it can kill dogs really. So everyone's best interest and if you're caught doing it you're committing a wildlife crime at that point do you monitor the numbers there no we d we don't count the seals no. i think the through in st andrews they do survey the seals around the five coast the numbers have been they are, have been declining over the years we're not really sure why are oh. they going elsewhere we don't know but they're still showing up in about groups of 200 hauling out at a time i came to live here in Teaport uh, in 2007 in the summer of 2007 and uh, really the obvious choice was to walk over to Tensmuir um, along the, uh, the waterfront and then along the beach and kind of by discovery I didn't know I realized they had such a large uh, seal colony at Tensmuir Point and uh, from my experience it was really it's a nice walk in the summertime, wintertime, anytime really. Usually they hold out uh, on the low tide. So I started to uh, look online when there was low tide so I could capture the seals uh, over at Tensmuir Point. Just the most amazing place to be. To have this on your doorstep, to have kind of a managed forest and the beach 
and the seals and the squirrels so even those at times I've seen the, the sea eagles soar over Tansmere Forest. I mean yeah all in all it makes it a wonderful wonderful place to be. Yeah, well, um, if you're from Aberdeenshire, you'll probably know Forvi Nature Reserve up yeah. there. And wow, the amount of seals um, at that reserve, at the River Lythen, at the mouth of the River Lythen. I don't know if you've been up recently, but... I have. I was, it's fantastic. Uh, wow, utterly amazing. Because I was, I lived in that part of the countryside, in, in the coast, um, right. oof, decades ago now. And um, let, let me think, that must be in, in the well, 80s, 90s, in fact. And the, um, the only time you saw a seal there was, would have been a dead seal, right. usually with, you know, that had been shot. Uh, so it was absolutely extraordinary to go up there recently and just see how the numbers have absolutely, yeah, they've come yeah, back. Yeah, I think like a couple of thousand. They, hearing them cry, it's oh, very yeah. much louder than at Tensmere. Yeah. Oh yes, it's amazing. Yes, it's something else. At the time, we we had a dog, and and he just used to tail between his legs and run because it was such an a, a, such an eerie eerie call. Quite quite uh, quite amazing. Quite amazing. It was like a bird watch place. I think one of the animals that I've seen there is a kingfisher. And that was my first kingfisher. We saw it dive in for a fish. Yeah, I really like animals. They're my favourite thing. Looking forward to happier times uh, when uh, we're without most of the restrictions uh, anyway, or, or hopefully all of them. Um, what kind of things do you have planned for, uh, say, children, young people this summer? What we really want to do is, when it's safe to, we want to have like a programme of events throughout the year. So I think it's a really good way to get kids involved and just get them getting really stuck in and going exploring, looking for little beasties. Um, seeing what they can see. What we want to do is get them building some bat boxes, some bird boxes, um, making bird feeders. Quite easy little things to do, but then they've made it and they can put it up. They can be like, well, I've done that. It'd be nice to do things like bio blitzes, get them looking at butterflies. In the summer, the dragonflies and butterflies are pretty amazing. Like there's such a variety of things that it's quite easy to miss them sometimes because they're so small, but it's nice to have events centered around them get some bushcraft events as well and just get everyone out and just getting involved. Well, Tensmere has always been my sort of favourite place for fungi. So I suppose it would have to be something fungal like Arbiculus scalpum vulgari, maybe. I'm trying to remember the English name for that. Ear pick fungus, that's it. A really, really weird looking thing. It looks like the the old ear picks Romans used to use to remove wax from their ears. It looks like a little cross between a ladle and a spoon. And they used to scrape earwax out of their ears with it. But it, <laughs> it only grows on buried pine cones. And Tensmere's, I think, the only place I've ever seen it. Uh, so yeah, that, that'd be a, probably a favourite. Well, my name's Tony Wilson. Um, I currently teach at SRUC Elmwood, range of courses, countryside management and rural skills, land-based studies. Uh, prior to that, I was a countryside ranger in Fife for um, more years than I care to remember. I finished as a ranger about eight years ago and uh, Tensmuir wasn't officially part of our patch because it's... Uh, well, in those days it was Forestry Commission, it's now Forest Land Scotland, uh, but we did cover part of it through the, the wildfowl and Oneiden estuary and uh, parts of the Tayport Bay area. Uh, and I also used to live in Tayport until about six years ago, so I know, I know Tensmere reasonably well. Whenever we go there it's really, really calm and then you can see the trees everywhere. It's, it's just nice. And you know, like or when I go on a cycle there, and you can just, you just keep cycling through to the through the forest, and it's just forest and forest, and that's great. Very calming and that. 
it's actually got quite a lot of very interesting species that are hugely under-recorded, um, not just fungi, but lichens, invertebrates, all sorts of things, uh, which is, is the same everywhere, really. Uh, we tend to focus on the, the bigger picture in nature. Uh, so birds, most people like birds, flowers, trees, plants, that kind of thing, large mammals. But trying to get people and, and even agencies to focus on smaller creatures can be difficult. They're not sexy. Uh, I remember going back many years, the, the first time the biodiversity action plans were launched in Fife, it was suggested a good idea might be to have 100 species uh, that were chosen because they were under threat in some way uh, and try and get local companies to champion a species. And as you can expect, red squirrels, um, buzzards, things like that all disappeared straight away. Uh, but trying to get people to actually sponsor things like millipedes and fungi, <laughs> it just didn't happen. Because you know, nobody's interested in them unless you're a total geek. <laughs> but they are fundamental to the environment. They are, if anything, more important. The first group of people I met in Tentsmuir who were uh, as interested in fungi as I were was back in the probably late 80s, early 90s, when I first started going around Tentsmuir, were some po older Polish guys that had uh, come over here during the war, uh, and they were the only people who went to Tentsmuir to collect fungi. I was thinking about it um, the other day. It's the really the connection with my Polish heritage because um, when I moved here 15 years ago um, I um, found out uh, for the first time that uh, Fife and Tensmiel has real connections to Poland because this is where the Polish army was stationed during the Second World War and that's where all the attack defences um, uh, were built by the soldiers and there's actually even a Polish camp road where um, there's remnants of the officer's cottage and everybody else was in tents. So um, it was quite magical finding myself uh, living next to um, a, a bit of Polish-Scottish heritage connection. You're into nature and love nature. You're just telling me how you part of the bird ringing scheme. And I know you from guided tours that you did for Grilla Kakodi and Transition St. Andrews, uh, so nature tours. Um, so you obviously have quite a lot of passion for nature. And now you're teaching people about how to manage it or manage landscapes. Do you recall what got you into this and, um, and sharing it, you know, sharing your passion with others like that? I suppose my my family, particularly from my mother's side, was from a farming background. Um, and even though we lived in, in a town and my mother's family had gone into the railway industry, um, they still used to take us out into the countryside and we still had relatives working as farmers. Uh, so I suppose from a very early age, we used to go up the Angus Glens pretty much every weekend we could. Um, and I also had relatives in Fife uh, down in Leslie while it was still separate from Glenrothes, just showing my age here. Um, and when we went down to visit them, it was a regular trip to go down to Vane Farm, which had not long been set up. Yeah, so I suppose it was, it was a combination of that sort of thing and just mucking about on the mud flats at Montrose Basin. You know, in those days when kids were allowed to go and muck about on the mud flats unsupervised. Yeah, well, that said, there's a, a whole load of research, educationally speaking, uh, about the benefits of just exploration in learning, particularly a younger age group, uh, sort of nursery age through an early years of primary. Younger kids particularly benefit from learning their own things uh, with a bit of guidance and, you know, answering questions as needed. And the, the way we seem to have evolved to learn things at an early age is by exploration. So yeah, just, just getting out there and mucking about on your own is, is a very good way to learn. During the pandemic, he showed me where he, there was a little hill and he would take down his, um, his blanket and that was his office. So when he was furloughed, so you could go and sit out there. And so the great thing about it is you can turn it into an office. You're listening to birds singing and you're observing the nature, you're 
yeah. you're kind of being in the now and I know it's this popular you know Eastern mindfulness yeah. yes uh, <laughs> uh, words you know fancy words <coughs> right now but but actually it makes you be in the now you you enjoy your surroundings you you breathe fresh air you it makes you think about things that normally you wouldn't think about because you're in that very special space so yeah we're we're blessed to have Tensmuir here so we are all obviously very fond of Tensmuir around here and it's been a real blessing to have it at our doorstep during lockdown especially and this month we are taking part in um, the show the love campaign by climate coalition to encourage people to think about things they love and want to protect from climate change and we thought it would be interesting to explore how climate change might affect Tensmuir so um, I know that um, Adaptation Scotland has published a nice little summary of changes in cli uh, Scottish climate that, so, that have already happened, including rising sea levels and increase in temperature. The 10 last years were the hottest on record, I think, and also increased rainfall and increased intensity of rainfall. So, I mean, at least in terms of physical environment that you can, we can see things happening. I was... Wondering whether uh, you could um, tell us how climate change is affecting tents, mills, plants and animals already, whether there's any effects that you know of. Nobody's 100% sure exactly how climate change is going to affect things. I mean, it's, it's, as somebody once said, it's, a, it's an experiment we're running, uh, but we've no idea what the outcome's going to be. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Give it a hundred years, and we might know something better. But uh, but how it's going to impact on local climates, on weather patterns, on sea level, uh, until it kind of develops more, uh, we're we're only hypothesising uh, and using computer modelling to kind of work out where things might go. The the easiest thing to monitor is uh, just recording species. Now, having just talked a little bit about invertebrates and, and microfungi and things like that, the, the easier ones to identify and, and see are birds and some butterfly species, uh, things that are obvious. So they're, they're kind of the key indicator species people would be looking for. And certainly over the last, well, 30 years, I, I've actually more than 30 years I've worked in the area, there have been species moved into Fife that were occasional records or were never recorded in the county. So the obvious ones to speak about would probably be butterflies. Uh, I don't recall seeing comma butterflies in Fife before probably the late 90s, maybe early 2000s orange tip butterflies were much less frequent 30 years ago than they are now and the evidence seems to suggest that this may be because they're able to uh, survive the winters slightly better because we have got winter periods now obviously we had a really cold snap recently and 10 years ago we had a one of the coldest winters on record but it's differentiating weather from climate the, the trend is for uh, a warming Actually, a friend of mine took me, she knows a lot of paths, and um, so she took me on, on paths I'd never been to, and there's a favourite path that's been sort of um, cleared through the wood, right, so it's a bit off the usual route, and it's very, very peaceful, uh, very quiet and very peaceful, and that's probably a new favourite of mine, but of course the bird hides are always a draw. And it's always wonderful to see so many different species of birds, not to mention the red squirrels, of course, that are very entertaining. So it's just a lovely place. In terms of birds, I would, I would say there are species moving into the area as well. Nuthatch was never really recorded in Fife, certainly in my lifetime. And it's now fairly regularly seen in Perth, that kind of area. So there does seem to be a trend for species from the south to be moving to the north. Now, whether that's related to warmer climate, there's probably a lot more research needs to be done. But the suggestion is that it's because the winters are that little bit less cold. The other thing to note, of course, is when migrants travel in and out of an area. Uh, so there seems to be some 
evidence that that some of the uh, summer migrants particularly seem to be returning to the UK earlier than they used to. So it's, it's always worth people taking note when they see the first swallow or uh, hear the first willow warbler and similarly at the end of the year when they see the last one because those trends could get fed into the national databases and that may give some evidence to changing patterns because if the birds start arriving early and there isn't the food species around at that time of year for them, potentially they could have a problem early in the breeding season. So it, it, it's a very complicated world. But just observing some of the more obvious species can maybe allow a, a bigger picture to develop and people to extrapolate from that. I like the... So there's different zones of it, and we found it today. So you walk past one bit and it will suddenly be like a wetland and you can feel the, the change in the humidity, you know. So and then later on, I said, this bit reminds me of being in Australia. Then there was another bit, I said, this could be Canada. You know, I know forest yeah. to forest, but I think that's the interesting thing. I think you could be anywhere. Um, you can live in Tabor and, and go to Canada and Australia and uh, <laughs> a swamp somewhere, you know. <laughs> So you've mentioned quite a few species moving in because potentially warmer weather or other factors. Are you aware of any production in numbers of other species? I know that puffins, for example, I mean, puffins are not intense mule, but, but I, I know that puffins are decreasing because of the um, warming water is affecting the food source. Uh, but I wonder if there's anything um, intense mule that you're aware of. You're talking about puffins. It seems to be related to their one of their major prey species, sand eels, preferring colder water. And so their population moving moving further north seems to be what's driving a decline in not just puffins, but the other species that, uh, that eat those small fish. It doesn't seem to be quite such a factor in the North Sea. It, it seems to be more on the West Coast and the Northern Isles uh, that this warming effect possibly something to do with the Gulf Stream because the west and north coasts affected more by that than the North Sea. But it's certainly a, a trend that we could theoretically see a decline in our, not just puffins, but things like kittiwakes and uh, shags and stuff like that that depend on these small but fish. None of the waders or birds that sort of visit the mud floods here, or seals, I don't know. Seals is a completely different thing. That It's probably not climate change that's affecting seals, I would think. Now, you'd probably need to speak to somebody from the Sea Mammal Research Centre to get, to get you know, more data on that. Um, I think the reason the decline in seals and intense me, and, and bear in mind this is just my opinion, not based on any strong science, uh, just observation over 30 odd years. Um, it's probably more down to uh, increased human traffic, I would suggest. There's certainly been a huge increase on the footfall of people around Tensmuir Point in the last 30 years, particularly people with dogs, yeah. And I know when I worked as a ranger, one of the things that we used to get all the time when I started was uh, call-outs for abandoned seal pups on the beach at Tensmere. Yeah, they weren't abandoned seal pups. They were just mums going to sea to do some fishing and we'll be back in a few hours. But they would regularly get picked up by people or molested by dogs or whatever. And, and it could be that they've just moved because of that disturbance, amongst other factors. I mean, similarly with the ground nesting birds, it's not just down to increased people pressure, it's changing land management, uh, increased predation, all sorts of factors around that. But the, the, from, from Tensmuir Point down to Earlsholm, Muir Leaden Estuary used to be one of, one of the best dune slack systems in Britain uh, and used to have some of the best breeding numbers of things like eider and some wading species as well. And it's a combination of factors that's caused a redu severe reduction in that over the last hundred and some years. Um, it's, a, it's quite an actively changing landscape because of all yes, the, yeah, the um, yeah. sand deposition from the river as well, isn't it, as well as erosion from the waves and things. It's complicated. I do know that at one point, Tensmere Point was the fastest accreting part of the British coastline. It was building up at a rate of up to five metres a year. I don't know what the current figures are, but certainly the last sort of 20 years or so, there's been quite a few uh, 
breaches through the dunes and uh, erosion incidents and so on. Now that that could partly be down to sea level rise, which is you know related to your climate change. But the other thing to bear in mind is that up until recently, and uh, again, you need to speak to a proper geologist to get the actual figures, but uh, this part of Northern Europe has been recovering from the weight of the ice during the last glaciation. You can see that in raised beaches along the coast of Fife, and the one at Kinkel Braes in St Andrews where the caravan park is. There's several at Earls Ferry as well. And what's happened is the crust recovered from the weight of that ice, which has lifted the land above the level of the sea. Now that seems to, I seem to recall reading somewhere that that has slowed down, if not stopped. My point would be that if the, if the land was rising and the sea was rising, the, the, you know, they're kind of competing and rising together. Whereas if one slows down and the other one keeps rising, the sea will eventually start accelerating relative to to the land. Uh, so, you know, that, that process is, uh, in the end, is driven by climate change in that we've had a massive cl change in climate since last, the last glacial period. But uh, uh, that one wasn't driven by us. Um, yeah. You can't be blamed for everything. No, we can't. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> uh, even with that... From since 1900, um, this is mm. uh, information from an article based on the talk that um, uh, Professor Rob Dack did last year. Uh, he said um, the level of the sea increased between three to six centimeters in the estuary of the Tay. Mm. So yeah. it doesn't seem much, but it's it's going up on balance. <laughs> yes, it is going up. Yeah. There's loads of really great things about Tentsmuir, but one of the places I really love is Lucky Scalp Island, just out from the caravan park. And you can walk across at low tide in about 15 minutes. Yeah, it's one of the lovely places I like to go to and hang out. I really like Lucky Scalp because it's quite an unusual spot to discover, and not everyone knows it's there. And when you're out there, you've got this real sense of peace and solitude, and it's, uh, it's quite a nice place to go swimming from the edge of as well. And it's interesting what you were saying about uh, increased rainfall. Uh, I was speaking to somebody uh, just the other day about uh, footpath erosion on another site much further north. Uh, but it's similar. Um, it's sort of like a sand dune system that's that's got public access. And one of the issues that they're noticing um, is much more erosion on the footpaths in the, in the sand dune areas that are that's being exacerbated by puddling muddy areas which they never used to get to anything like the extent they do now and that ties in with what you were saying about there does seem to be a trend of higher rainfall on the east coast particularly to what historic levels were and that seems to be a trend uh, coming in over the last few years and what it does is in terms of erosion is it it makes the footpath wet and muddy which people aren't terribly used to so they walk around the outside of it uh, which increases the eroded area on the sides of the footpath, which in a sand dune system, when it dries out, the wind gets into it and blows that sand away. So it just, just makes the whole thing worse. Potentially, if there's an increase in rainfall, you, you could see effects like that. Plus, it might change the dynamic of some of the, uh, the plant communities on uh, in the area. I really like walking here and uh, I use it a lot in writing and things and also I like foraging. So I've written yeah. loads of poems about Tentsphere. There's one, I have got one about about out there in the samphire and picking samphire. That was like, yeah, there's about only about six weeks in the summer when you can gather the samphire here, but yeah, that's one of them. And I really want to go out there to, uh, to Lucky Scalp one day, but I have to know my tides well and know where where the treacherous bits may be, because I want to go over there. But it's lovely, yeah, I just love being here. Is there anything that you might want to add about maybe future changes in, in Tensmuir in terms of wildlife and plant life? I mean, if, if you take climate change out of the equation for a moment, the, the, the biggest factor that influenced the, the Tensmuir area, the dune slack area was the, the plantation woodland that started when the Forestry Commission uh, started planting trees there. That has led to a detriment in the, the native habitat there because there, there should not be 
pine trees, spruce trees, larch trees, whatever, growing in this area. It should be dune slacks, uh, you know, grey dune systems, yellow dune systems, lichen heaths, that kind of thing is, is what was there until people came along and planted trees on it. So is there an argument to maybe increase the size of the National Nature Reserve at Tensmere Point? Maybe sort of slowly re- reduce the tree cover back away and increase the, the area of heathland, that kind of thing? That's maybe something people might want to do some research into. How could how could we do offset climate change by thinking about natural mitigation in the Tensmere area? One of the things that people always say that we could do is is planting trees. I would counter that by saying yes, that's that's a fair point. Plant trees, but do so in appropriate areas. There is evidence that some of the tree planting schemes that may have happened to capture carbon. Uh, have happened in areas where, for instance, they've been planted on peat moorlands and they're actually breaking down the structure of the, the peat soil, which releases more carbon than the trees are actually capturing. So, you know, you have to think, is this an appropriate area to plant trees? Uh, and if we're looking at a bigger picture, maybe ecologically speaking, Tensmere isn't the best place to plant trees because the sort of dune heaths that we're talking about are nationally rare. What I love is you can walk through the forest and be sheltered from the wind and then come out onto the beach and enjoy the sunshine. Is there any sort of final message you would like to give to people? That- the, the biggest contribution I think local communities can make is, is through recording what they see and letting organisations that use that data know about it. Now, whether that's doing things like the, the Great British Bird Watch or British Trust for Ornithology has got various schemes for recording bird populations. There's reptile societies, mammal societies, butterfly societies, dragonfly societies. There's Nature Scott at Morton Locks. Any of those organisations will... Bumblebees. Bumblebees, yep, you name it. Go out and start recording things. So recording what species are there and when, yeah? And submit the records. Don't just keep them to yourself so that that data can be used to make decisions about how small areas like Tensmuir or larger areas like Scotland are being influenced by not just climate change, but other factors. So that's that's kind of the, the thing that the people of Dayport could do. So I love the... The huge beach. The beach is um, is really nice and it's always really lively. Like there's always people out walking. That nice to speak to. Um, I really like the nature, like the wee reserves they have with uh, they have all the the plants and stuff, which are again really nice. But yeah, I just enjoy the enjoy the atmosphere here as well. And um, just maybe switching a little bit to the whole um, climate emergency, what what the organisation themselves, Nature Scott, is if they are doing anything, uh, you know, to move towards a bit of a more low carbon organisation. They're doing quite a lot. So I think the Scottish government target is to be. Um, net zero by 2045 I think so we're working towards that as well we want to be net zero one of the main things that I know of is moving towards a um, all-electric fleet vehicles obviously as the batteries are getting better it's getting more likely as well but I think a lot of new starts a lot of the pool cars are electric vehicles and we're getting charging points at all of the offices as well reducing if any international travel and just trying to take public transport, making active travel a bit more available as well, promoting people cycling to work, walking to work, and then um, also managing the land that we manage best practice for things like storing carbon, and also working with lots of partners to try and increase and restore the habitats that they have, so make it more resilient against climate change. I love the expanse of openness and the fact that you're in the elements and it's so beautiful it's so so beautiful it's like this is a part of Scotland that's just stunning can you tell me a little bit more about the storing carbon bit of it well peatlands are the example I'm most familiar with really, um, just restoring peatlands. So it's a huge part of it. So a lot of the restoring of peatlands is by damming it to keep the water in and also removing trees and things that are growing on it, like the scrub, 
just to let it be Pete. It's something that we're involved in and also give out best practice guides, work with partners who have it to help them restore it and manage it so that it can store as much carbon as possible. And the same with marine carbon stores. So I think that's called blue carbon. And in marine sediment, that, that stores a lot of carbon. It's got a lot of carbon in it. So to protect that by marine protected areas. So just protecting areas that are already really good at what they do and then creating management and guidelines to keep them storing as much carbon as they do. I think all of us, although we've really appreciated the reserve during lockdown, I mean, I'm also really itching to take part in one of your nature walks and to go on a fungi uh, foray um, and try some basket weaving, as you mentioned, you might we might be having, and even volunteer uh, at the reserve. I think I'm going to go and actually fill in the application form. You've kind of enthused me. There's lots I'm sure that I, we could all do. And it sounds like a brilliant place uh, and a great team to be part of, uh, Marika. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It was lovely to chat. We've had a lovely walk all the way along. We've walked about probably maybe six, six and a half miles. And it's been fabulous. Just, it's just been so peaceful. It really has. And there's, there's a bit of warmth in the sun. And just, uh, there's been a lot of wildlife, but the seals were great to watch on the sand banks for a while. It was like walking in a, like a desert. It was just all oh, the, the, the tide being so far out. It was beautiful. It was quiet and peaceful. And to hear the silence was lovely as well. Fabulous. Thanks for listening to our February episode. You will find links to resources mentioned in the podcast in the episode description, including links to Tedsmuir National Nature Reserve Facebook page, where you can check for upcoming events, and to Nature Scott Volunteer Form, which you can fill in if you'd like to give Marika's team a hand when lockdown finally lifts this year. You may also want to look out for a virtual poetry walk around Tensmuir on the 13th of March, a part of Stanza, uh, St Andrew's International Poetry Festival. In our March episode, we will talk to a young musician, Joe Stark, who's taking part in 100 Days of Green Nevis Challenge as a member of the Nevis Ensemble. Until then, take care and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Plant Voices podcast. For more Tapeworth Community Garden stories and for information on how to get involved, visit our website on www.tapeworthgarden.org.